Hello and welcome to Kipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. This week, finding out that I am in fact cursed as my laptop broke one, one day before classes start. And five minutes before us beginning to record. Yeah, it was great. I really enjoyed it. It sounded like you were having a really good time. Mm-hmm. And this is not the first laptop that has suddenly broken on you, so thus no. the curse. That's the curse. <laughs> well, I'm Cameron Lalana, and this week I have started another book. How long is the list of books that I'm currently reading, you ask? Um, about six. Will I ever finish any of them? No. <laughs> <laughs> Check back on that, like, next year. <laughs> this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be taking a look at Mikhail Bulgakov's Heart of a Dog. This book was originally requested by a few of our patrons. If you want a say in what we're going to be reading next, head on over to patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. For as little as $3 a month, you can keep your favorite Russian literature podcast running and join in on fun events like movie nights on Discord, like the very fun movie Rusalka we watched last week. So fun. Not depressing at all. <laughs> it was a Russian movie. We got what we got. Um <laughs> If you're not interested in Patreon, but still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Thank you for the updates, Cameron. Of course. But before we get into reading today, Matt, what are you drinking? So uh, today's not a day where I'm proud of what I'm drinking. (laughs) Wait, can I guess? Is it a whiskey Coke? No. Well... Oh, okay. Perhaps worse... It is okay. it is a whiskey that my girlfriend got from Trader Joe's and she came in and put it on the counter and said it was $12 and I said okay and <laughs> okay. it's called something like weird and nondescript like uh, Kentucky's Best or something like that I can't remember what it was I, I forgot it as soon as I read it and yeah. it's not that bad so okay. that's hey. that's what I like to hear in a whiskey not that bad not that it's not as bad as you'd expect for a 12 dollar thing jug of of whiskey that's fair what are you drinking tonight um i am drinking a peanut butter milk stout by left hand brewing i believe i had one of their beers a long time ago it's it's good it's there's a lot of reese's pieces or legally distinct reese's pieces i'm sure uh (laughs) on the on the the can itself and it has a frighteningly chocolatey peanut butter flavor which i'm not opposed to it's just frighteningly strong yeah well with the the i'm sure the whiskey will help with um not gonna say overdone with (laughs) (laughs) with with the extensive political allegory we're going to be covering tonight there's so much (laughs) so today as we mentioned we read heart of a dog and this is this is an interesting novel Interesting and not interesting. It, it, there's a lot going on here. We'll, we'll get into it. Um, for the background, we don't have a ton here because this novel really focuses on the early Soviet Union, especially the in the it was written in the mid 1920s, and we've covered that pretty extensively in other podcasts. So we don't want to beat a dead horse. Um, and if you have not listened to those podcasts, I would recommend you probably go listen to the We episodes and uh, as well as Zuleika, which. Uh, we cover a lot of the history of this era, which will be relevant in understanding this, at least as Bulgakov might have intended it. But Heart of a Dog is a weird book. It's it's strange. If you have, if you look at any back cover, it's actually both more and less strange than any description you're going to read of it. Basically, we start on a dog. 
dog running through the Moscow streets, alternately being abused by people who do not want a dog eating their stuff, or sometimes helped by, for example, a nice typist who gives him some meat and gives him the name Sharik. Of course, because this is a Russian novel, the typist is also being abused by her boss. The dog is is running about until a man comes up and gives him some Krakow sausage, some nice sausage, and this dog instantly loves this man. And he, and he follows them all the way back to the man's really nice apartment. As soon as they're there, the dog <laughs> kind of freaks out when the man pulls him into what seems to be an operating room, and he rightly thinks, oh, something bad's going to happen to me. And then they chloroform him, and the, the, the man who turns out to be a professor or a doctor with his assistant, uh, another doctor, as well as uh, a housemaid, turn out to just be basically cleaning the dog up, making it a bit more healthy, giving it some food, less ominous than you might think. For now. For now. For now. <laughs> and in the ensuing day, <laughs> not that we're, not to foreshadow anything or no, anything. No, no, no. <laughs> in the ensuing days, the professor, Filip Filipovich, uh, along with the doctor, Dr. Bormenthal, who does not actually live with Filip Filipovich, but is a, a former student and a close friend and kind of a work assistant to the professor. Uh, much more closely related to the dog and much more important to the dog is the the house's cook, Daria, as well as the maid, uh, Zina. They have, a, you know, a nice time. We, we follow Filip Filipovich as he is in a weird space of being a pretty famous and fairly wealthy man in early Bolshevik society. It is fairly unusual for, well, it's it, it's entirely unusual for anyone to have multiple rooms, let alone a full seven-room apartment like Filip Filipovich has. In fact, his building is currently being uh, distributed to many other people, but he's fighting the redistribution of his rooms. As he argues, he needs to have different rooms for sleeping, for the servants' quarters, for the kitchen, for the dining room for his operation room for his experimentation room he needs he needs all of them and he's able to kind of push the housing committee away and as Sharik is watching this he's getting very very attached to his new master or god and he begins to refer to him refer to him as the godhead and he develops a very close attachment and almost identification with this professor as the professor goes through life pushing back on committees seeing patients mostly treating sexual dysfunction uh, which is a weird thing we'll might touch upon later. Um, until one day, Dr. Bormenthal comes running in and says, I've, I've got it. I've got it. And the professor says, how long ago did the man die? Dr. Bormenthal says, about three hours. Uh, the dog rightfully guesses something is up. And it gets even worse when they push the dog into a bathroom, uh, leave him there for a little bit before finally coming and wrestling him into the operating room and chloroforming him. At this point, we switch from the dog's perspective to a third person, and we see Dr. Bormenthal, along with the professor, replacing the dog's testicles with human's testicles. Just going to leave that one there before <laughs> uh, opening up the dog's head and replacing the pituitary gland in the cranium with a human's pituitary gland as someone who had died very recently. When the dog later wakes up, it has it unexpectedly survives, first of all, which, the, as the professor says repeatedly throughout the uh, operation he was not expecting at all and even begins to seem like he's changing a bit at this point we join dr bormenthal's notes instead of a third person perspective and we follow the next month as the dog begins to develop human characteristics uh beginning to develop a capacity for speech revealing that he can already read actually and slowly becoming more and more human-like even uh losing his fur standing upright and developing a personality once the dog <laughs> begins to talk 
problems arise. Well, first of all, the dog likes to curse a lot, which the professor is not down with. And the dog develops a really vulgar personality. Uh, the professor finds out from Dr. Bormenthal that the pituitary gland and testicles had come from a recently deceased criminal. Uh, he had been convicted several times for various crimes, but been, had been released because he was determined to be a member of the proletariat, who was then stabbed in a bar fight. And this concerns the professor quite a lot. The dog becomes a more and more vulgar creature as it begins to... I don't entirely know how to describe it. It begins... It, first of all, apparently, the knowledge for playing the balalaika is stored in the pituitary gland, which is something I learned from this book as he takes up the balalaika. Dude, everybody knows that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't know until now. This is something <laughs> of, of Soviet research that has been lost to time until, mm -hmm. I, until uh, this book revealed it. That's the main takeaway from the book, I think. <laughs> But the dog becomes more and more lecherous. It goes about in, the, in society and basically like assaulting a lot of women. And the dog keeps coming back in, always getting drunk and stealing money from the professor. And he's like, oh, I got hit by this guy. And the professor's like, that's because you basically tried to assault his maid. And the dog's like, I don't see why that's a problem. But this, this continual conflict between the two gets worse when the housing committee from earlier, who the professor had successfully basically beaten off, Mm, not gonna phrase it who the professor had successfully <laughs> pushed away from his apartment beat him right off <laughs> return and say hey you've got a man here and the professor says no this isn't a man this is a dog who i've put a pituitary gland into and now has weirdly human characteristics not doesn't make him human and the committee says well he is a human he speaks obviously he needs to be registered. You can't be a person in Soviet society without having registration. After much go back and forth, finally the doctor lets the dog be registered as a person. Shortly after this, the dog tries to assault Xena in the night, and the professor just intending to deal with the dog accidentally leaves the door unlocked, and the dog, Sharik, escapes. Oh, at this point, because of his personhood, is now known as <laughs> Starikov, uh, full name Polygraph Polygraphovich Starikov. Uh, which he took from a calendar, a traditional Russian thing to do. However, this calendar that he took his name from was a calendar about technology, thus the name Polygraph Polygraphovich. I wish this part wasn't satire. <laughs> this was, like, this happened. People did this. Several days later, the dog returns, now in uniform, and shows the, the doctor, or the professor, a document which says that he is now a government official. In fact, he is in charge of getting rid of the city's cat population. And then goes on to de gleefully describe how he has been strangling cats for the last couple of days. Which, <laughs> oh god, this book is going so far off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> he continues to live in the professor's house, but goes to work. Uh, every morning and one day brings back a, a typist and says hey she's gonna live with us now and uh this typist if you look closely seem, seems to be the same typist from the beginning of the book who is being abused by her boss and the professor kind of pulls her into room and, and talks with her and finds out that this dog has been lying to her uh he says he's a war hero or got wounded in the civil war and that's why he has this he has a, a scar on his head which is actually from the operation and he's become very domineering over her life and basically taking on the same abusive position that the old boss had, and now he's trying to force her to live with them. The, the professor says, you don't have to listen to him. Uh, here's some money. And he goes out to, the, to Starik, Starikov and says, you can't fire her. You've got to like leave her alone. And the dog says, well, you can't control that. And then the professor says, basically, uh, if you, I'm going to go check and make sure every day that she still works there. And if she's not, I am straight up going to kill you. Soon after that, 
a patient of the professor's comes and gives him a copy of the newspaper Pravda and says, hey, you should really take a look at this. In the newspaper, he finds a denunciation of him written by Starikov, or a denunciation made by Starikov alleging that uh, this professor was intending to harm or kill a, a member of the Bolshevik government and counter-revolutionary activities and reports on a lot of things that the professor has actually been saying that have been very anti-Bolshevik. So now he's like, oh my god, what am I going to do? Shortly after that, the dog returns, and it becomes very clear what he's going to do because the dog pulls out a gun and is like, well, I'm going to shoot you. Thankfully, for the professor, Dr. Bormenthal has taken up residence at that point in his apartment because of the whole mess of trying to raise a dog-human hybrid who is not super happy to be alive or conscious or sentient. I mean, who is really? And jumps on the dog and strangles him almost to death. A few days later, some officers come in and say, we're looking for Starikov, or Polygraph, Polygraphovich Starikov. We suspect you've killed him. And the doctor says, no, he's right here. And he shows the dog off to the officers, who is once again a dog, and shows some capacity for speech, but has seemed to, seems to have returned to the basic mental capacity of a dog. And the officer says, this is Starikov? The professor says, yes, yes it is. But this man held a government position. And the professor says, well, you're going to have to talk to the people from the housing committee about that because they were the ones who got him that position. I always thought it was a little bit silly. <laughs> and then the officer faints and they decide nothing's wrong here other than perhaps the housing committee, which appointed a dog to a government position. And we finally return to the dog's perspective as he has once again become very content in his life with the professor and, and continues to watch the professor as the professor, apparently not having learned his lesson, uh, along with the doctor, continues his research into brains and the attempting to form more hum human-animal homunculi, or at least researching the idea thereof, of such. And that is Heart of a Dog. It's... Good times. Yeah. A strange novel? I mean, I've read a lot of strange novels, a lot of strange Russian novels, but this one's definitely... The plot line was not anything I expected. It was weird for 1925, I think. Real weird for 1920. This is something I would expect from, like, the 1990s. Yeah, this is, like, written at the same time as... Well, not that Bulgakov was anywhere on the same as a person, but it's written around the same time as, like, Cement in some of these other novels that you hear. And it's just so weird compared to it. Right, which explains why this novel was not allowed to be published for quite a while. Oops. Yeah, um, I think it was not until... 1987. It was, I mean, it was, I mean, it wasn't officially published, but it was, like, underground published. Yes, it was a term you may have heard um, ad nauseum in the last few years, uh, a piece of Samizdat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything against Samizdat, I just, I, I just hate hearing, there's just certain Russian words that, uh, like, American journalists learn and then just use them to death, and then I just get tired of seeing them, even though they're perfectly legitimate uses of the this word. This is my Russian cultural context now. <laughs> 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 it will be forever <laughs> <laughs> that and compromat those are two words that i i just i sincerely hope to never see in a title ever again well good luck with that <laughs> there are other words for describing this it whatever that my my beef my beefs with some tendencies aside what did you this is a weird book what do you think of it i mean i obviously we're gonna get to the very very apparent meaning in just a second but what did you think of it, even outside of the, the, what, the very apparent allegory that this is? A few things on the book. Uh, one, pretty funny. It wasn't the best it book is. I've ever read. I, I don't think it was 
it was a little bit long to get the, the point across. I think it's a little bit hard reading this almost a hundred years since it was written. I, I think at the time it probably would have been a lot more biting. Uh, but reading it now, it's kind of like, yeah, this is a thing people think about the Soviet Union. Uh, it's not like a necessarily groundbreaking take to have on the Soviet Union. I also didn't like the translation I was reading, I don't think. So I tried uh, getting out an audiobook, and because I am a cheap, cheap man, I bought the $1 audiobook, which was the biggest mistake of my life. I just want to talk about this audiobook for a minute because it, okay, I don't know yeah. who read it. They were reading from the translation I was reading from, which didn't help. And the music was as loud as the person talking. There was just background music for for no reason. Uh, it was so obnoxious i could not concentrate on it <laughs> and i think like the person who was reading it no disrespect to them but if you're gonna sell an audiobook maybe like read it yourself first before <laughs> going through it I, it sounded like he was just as surprised as me but not in like an intentional way um so that was fun so i ended up spending more dollars for a nice british man to read it to me which was you know it improved my experience a little bit uh, <laughs> uh that, that being said i i kind of like the other translation of the second audiobook that i picked up a, a little bit more i think it captured some of the humor of the language which i think bukakov is a fantastic writer and has a really excellent command of the russian language and that does not translate in what i was reading uh for one i know a lot of the translations called dog sharik which is like it's like a little little ball yeah, whatever. Ball. I don't. I don't know. But I think if you're just gonna leave the original Russian word, it does. It's not. It it doesn't quite capture the same effect that actually translating it does. So what I mean, for example, uh, when his name is Sharik, and then he gets uh, his, you know, he he becomes humanized and he becomes Sharikov. That's not really that funny to the average uh, English or English speaking reader. And the one that I was listening to, the second one, they called him Furball, which I think is probably a, uh, captures the spirit of the word Sharik better. Uh, and then when he became human, he became Furballov, which I thought was way funnier. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Uh, that was just like a small example of the differences in some of the translations that I actually happened to be aware of this time as I was uh, <laughs> making my way through <laughs> several of them. Right. I think you and I both originally were reading the Mira Ginsburg translation i'm only aware of the existence of the michael glennie in the mira ginsburg translations there might be more at this point but it at least they both they were translated a long time ago and it does show a little bit in the writing style and the sensibilities of translation that this is not a recent recent work of the translation i mean obviously that was written a long time ago so that's going to show up to a certain degree but the, the english uses of language are apparently are a little bit outdated yeah it was just a little bit uh outdated i think i think we've gotten a little bit better at now well, not always, but in some cases we can be a little bit better at capturing humor of the language, which is probably the hardest thing to translate. So, you know, no disrespect yeah. to the translator that I read. No, I, yeah, it's a perfectly fine translation. Um, nothing against either, just things to be aware of as you go into it, uh, your choice of translation, if you choose to read this novel. Yeah, if you're reading a satire and you're like, wow, this is really boring and not funny, well, it could be the satire, but it also could be your translation. <laughs> Especially if you're reading really cheap ones. I was reading, I think this is kind of off topic, but the Dostoevsky. Um, oh, yeah. The meek one. 
Oh yeah, the meek one. I that that I don't know. I had, I had to buy a second one because the first translation I bought was I I just I just got it because it needed. I was out of California at the time and I, I forgot to bring my book. And I just bought the first one I saw, which was a mistake because I was going through it. The writing was super awkward. And I was like, who is this publisher? And it was like this weird, tiny religious publisher, which I, I didn't even have a clear sense of what they did other than public domain works from other languages. And that was the day I learned that I... You made a huge mistake. Yeah, I made a huge mistake. And secondarily, be careful when you're writing, buying strange <laughs> Kindle editions of books, translation, <laughs> Kindle translations on, on Amazon's website. Good advice, Cameron. Buy it from our affiliate links instead. <laughs> <laughs> that is, yes, that is good advice. So, like I mentioned earlier, as you may have guessed as you were listening to the summary, this is most commonly read as and was probably intended as a satire of early Soviet life. Uh, Sharik roughly being read as <laughs> the creation, like the, the creation of a Soviet bureaucrat who exists for no apparent purpose other than cruelty uh, against small things, which may, as they imply in the book, later be translated to humans. He replicates the cruelty of other Soviet officials. Every Soviet official in this book is either cruel or unthinkingly following a doctrinal line. It's it's not super subtle. You can you can see why this was the Soviet authorities were not super big on this. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't mean to get down on it because I think I, I have the same attitude towards this as I have towards we, which is that it's interesting for its time and i'm when i when i read it sometimes i'm like oh this feels so overdone but that's because i've got a literally like a hundred years of people writing this exact same thing following uh in following years and for the most part it was handled in later years by much less talented writers than bulgakov is yeah um but i think reading this book i personally when i walk away from it i have i i think it's still really interesting but a lot of the interest i derive from it is because when i when i first approached this book i thought this is obviously satire and then i was reading i thought well maybe this is too simple maybe maybe i'm just making that common mistake that people do when they look at works from other cultures and be like oh this is obviously what it is it's a satire of the government yada 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 and i thought well i I should go read some scholarship on this and maybe there's something here that i'm completely missing and i don't want to propagate a you know an understandable but just very wrong idea I probably didn't need to. This is it is basically what it appears to be. That being said, I think the book has enough elements that you can read it in ways that it wasn't necessarily meant to be written as, which still make it an interesting literary examination. And there are a lot of different ways you could read it. And definitely a lot of the articles I've I read on it presented very interesting. I don't know if I agree with all of them, but very interesting lines of argumentation for different literary understandings of features of this book. And I I kind of almost have more fun when I go off you know, off the script with what was kind of intended and it start digging into probably unintentional features of maybe comedy or attempted comedy or this or that. But that that's where I get a lot more joy out of reading it. And I, I still do think it's it's interesting in that regards. I do I probably will take another look at this book because it's really short. It's only hundred pages and I finished it in like maybe two hours. So you can read it this pretty fast. Well what were some of the tangents that you were taking a look at? Well okay. So I one of the ones that really captured my attention is this article, Bad Words Are Not Allowed, Language and Transformation in Mikhail Bulakov's Heart of a Dog uh, by uh, Eric Larson. First of all, because he, Eric Larson goes on a complete broadside of everyone else writing about, <laughs> uh, launches a complete broadside against everyone else who's writing about the political elements of the book, uh, it's, it's na- naming names, who he, who he specifically thinks had a bad take on it, okay. uh, especially even other people that I'd read, which is 
always name funny. Them, name them right now. Throw, throw them on. The, <laughs> do it. <laughs> his his argumentation. I don't entirely think I agree with his out with his. I think he tries to argue for this book being more complex than it is, and he tries to argue for this being the primary understanding. I think. I don't know if I entirely agree with that. And I think some of his broadsides against other authors, having read some of their work, I think it might be a bit overgeneralized. But broadly, he, when he, in the title, Bad Words Are Not Allowed, really focuses in on the place of language used in this novel, especially in the, in the opposing ways that it is used by the professor and by the head of the housing committee, Schwander. He calls them both modern Prometheuses. He, well, he takes this idea from Katarina Clark, who wrote um, the Soviet novel, uh, which is an interesting examination of, of socialist realist novels, which we've been talking about a lot. Maybe one day we'll talk about more, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty large work, but very interesting. But Katarina Clark uh, labeled efforts to change language, language in the early 1920s as Promethean linguistics which she defined as the idea that language can serve as the ultimate vehicle for the kind of transformation sought by revolution. Just as Prometheus transformed epistemological boundaries and stole fire, one could, in order to give fire to the people, intervene in the natural cause of language evolution and regulate it. So when this author is talking about Promethean, as, as modern Prometheans, or as the professor and Schwander as modern Prometheans in this sense, they really focus on the way that the two of them regulate language in their environment. So the professor is often read as kind of a, a stand-in for, for Bulgakov, but Larson argues for the professor as a more, not sinister exactly, but a bit more of a domineering character than you, than you might initially be, might initially approach it. Upon first examination, you might look at the Soviet system as this weird, contr overly controlling system, which makes you, tells you to do tells you what to do all the time, and you've got no free will. But as Larson points out, the same is kind of true in, in the professor's apartment. In fact, when he talks to his, his staff and when he talks to, his, his, to, to the doctor who assists him, he doesn't so much converse with them as he lectures to them all the time. And he even controls to a certain extent what they eat. When they're having dinner together, the professor lectures the doctor on what he should and shouldn't eat, what he should and shouldn't drink. Um, and obviously he's, you know, as patients come to him, he has asserts control over their lives, over what they should and shouldn't do. And as Starik develops a capacity to use language in the way that he wants to, the professor puts a lot of effort into controlling that. Best exemplified in no or bad words not allowed. The, the, the dog curses a lot. That's a lot of what he's initially, he's not so much speaking as it's just using language that it's heard before. It's just regurgitating what's in its mind a lot of which is cursing. And the professor gets does not like cursing whatsoever. It, it's to him it's low class, you know, it's a sign of criminality. This this is this cannot be countenanced. And so this is the thing that really gets on him and he begins to try to control the way the dog speaks to make him speak in a way that he thinks is respectable. No cursing, no talking about this or that. Uh, if you're going to play music as the dog starts, it should be of like the right kind of music. It should be of the theater music that the professor likes and not the low-class circus music or folk music that the dog seems to like. And the professor takes on the same almost role in a very unofficial way that the that Schwander, the head of the housing committee, also takes in when, when he begins to exert a strong control over Starik or a strong influence over him, Starik takes on the language of the Soviet bureaucracy. Schwander is very much trying to control the dog, trying to make him a model proletarian. But as the, the dog 
shows he's very much his own creature in as much as the dog will throw about all the proletarian language he's learned from the angles he's read and the Karl Kautsky he, he keeps. Um, he really does not understand the deeper meaning. He throws it about when it's his advantage, but he doesn't actually believe in any of it. And yet the head of the housing committee continues to try to push this language to control his language in the way that that the that Starwick speaks. And when Starwick speaks out of turn, says something that's obviously counter-revolutionary or for example, when, when they're trying to get the dog or Starik registered to be a person, Schwander says, well, what if there's a war? We wouldn't be able to draft him without him having a personhood. And the dog says, oh, well, I'm not going to war. <laughs> Leave that to someone else. And, you know, that the head of housing turns to him and tries to correct his like, well, that's not quite the way we want to say things or something like that. And he's trying to exert a sense of control over him by by regulating his use of language. But both both the professor and um, the head of housing, Schwander, fail to create a new humankind and and the professor is even as much as Schwander trying to create a new humankind because he's literally trying he's literally creating homunculi creations of mixed animals and and humans uh, or i guess maybe chimera is a more accurate term he's trying to create a new sense of humanity which he's also trying to establish a sense of control under there's a lot more to it than that but that's the basic underlying idea of of that paper i don't entirely know if that that plays out at, that could stand as a primary interpretation but as an alternative ex- interpretation of the work, I think it's really intriguing, especially because of the ways that it there's there's a very common, I think, when people look at especially the Soviet regime, but I think this can be generalized out to a lot of uh, foreign countries, especially when it's it's something that people feel is in opposition to their own sense of governance. In this case, let's talk about the Soviet Union as it's most relevant here. Um, there is a tendency to look at, and this is a point Katerina Clark makes in her book, The Soviet Novel, to look at like the the, for, the forces of thought, of controlling thought in society as, well, there's the regime, and then there's the intellectual class. And like the, the regime is all those things you don't like, and the intellectual class, they're the Democrats, and, and like the, the liberals in the small l liberal sense of like liberal capitalism and, and under which most Western democracies operate. That's the class that we would roughly agree with, and they're kind of pushing back, but this is often a, an oversimplification of the reality of political push and pull. For example, in the, the Russian case, many dissidents were, in fact, quite right wing, um, more so than I think the, the average um, supporter of the kind of dissenter class would be comfortable with. For example, Solzhenitsyn is a very popular dissident in the Soviet regime, quite domineering in his own, in his own life and very hard right not exactly monarchist in his beliefs but very traditionalist i remember there was i think it's the book the 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 new russians or maybe it's the russians it's by a a journalist who was living in the soviet union the eight late um in the late 80s and he meets with solzhenitsyn and solzhenitsyn uh, agrees to an interview but when he the the guy shows up for the interview he solzhenitsyn gives him um gives him a written article and says this is the article you're going to (laughs) publish He, like and he refused to answer any any questions that the guy has. He's like, "This is what you're going to publish. This is what I want you to write." And the guy's like, "No, I'm I gotta I'm gonna write it. And I gotta ask you some questions." And then Solzhenitsyn says, "Basically, well, if you're not going to publish what I want you to publish, then I'm not going to talk to you." So again, I this was I do not think this was intended, but this is an interesting read into the I think much more complex ways that political um, clashes happen, and especially were happening in this context. Yeah, I think that that paper has a lot of valid points. I think that I definitely agree with the idea that the 
Doctor is not a stand-in for Bulgakov. I wouldn't say that. I think he can be at points. I think there are points mm. when you get into the narrator's head which hold the same viewpoint as Bulgakov, but as a character, I think he is almost equally as ridiculous as a lot of the people he's talking to and interacting with throughout the book. I mean, he's not a he's not half dog, half person, of course. He's not like that kind of ridiculous, but he's just he's very anal, very uh uncompromising just kind of ridiculous uh and i think it's a, i think it's a satire of that class too i don't think it's bulgakov standing in for a doctor because he was also a doctor i think it's uh, him recognizing maybe the absurdity of other doctors that he's worked with for instance and you can kind of you know wash over that when you want to make it a big anti-soviet thing but i don't think it's just an anti-soviet piece it's not that it's actually it is deeper than that of course one thing I, I see in the 1920s is especially the fact that society is not quite structured yet. You're really in a state of flux here, which is why Bulgakov would even dream of writing something that's like this on the nose at this point in time. But it's at the same time not totally on the nose for the time in which it was written. It's not like you've had these giant waves of like Stalinist repression yet. You could look back and be like, oh, Bulgakov saw it coming. Yeah, maybe. Sure. I don't know. I'm not going to tell you he didn't. But what I am going to tell you is 1925 is a lot different than 1940, for instance. And what this is, is actually more of an attempt of a sort of public forum. That's kind of what I see the role of literature and the arts in the 1920s. That's kind of my my take on this, because this deals with some issues that were like really hot in terms of discussion at the time, like eugenics. Uh, one of the writers that i research he wrote a play that was involved discussions of eugenics but it was supposed to be held in sort of like a theater slash public forum sort of thing uh, a weird combination of theater and public interaction and i think that that's i i don't know it's it's not to the same degree here per se and the thing is is when you're reading it 100 years later you don't get any sort of public forum for it besides if you happen to have a russian literature podcast i guess but it's not like we're actively debating these issues. No one's talking about eugenics now. I mean, like, yeah, some people talk about eugenics, but it's not like... But we don't talk to them. <laughs> right, but we don't talk to them, exactly. Um, but it, it was much different in the 1920s. And it's not just eugenics. Like, it, it was really tied up with the idea of the new Soviet man and how can you create this ideal Soviet citizen uh, with the you know perfect environmental surroundings and that there were a lot of people that were like writing on this and were very interested in this idea and so i think that that's like it's a satire of people who believed that you could just very simply just overnight almost just switch uh, switch a couple things and all of a sudden you would have this absolutely perfect person uh and then of course it goes into satire of the actual internal mechanisms of the early soviet union um, and, and things like that and so I, I do think it is it is funny but it is also a fundamental disagreement with the goal of the soviet union that bulgakov has and that carries into master and margarita which is much much more complex and obviously we're not gonna i'm not even gonna bother talking that much about it here except to say that it's far more complex uh than we could cover in one episode i i'm a little nervous to cover it just because of like <laughs> how much there is there to say about it honestly <laughs> oh god yeah um 
I think your your point about it being a form of sense is really interesting. And in that sense, this being a satire makes more sense. And I think is it makes it it's a much more a much more important document in that sense that it is a, a piece of discourse. And just to underline that, there's an article by Irina Shilova called Reflections of Soviet Reality in Heart of a Dog as Bulgakov's Way of Discussion with the Proletarian Writers, who um, her article, you, I'll, I'll link that in the description. But a lot of what she's covering is Bulgakov's diary in this time. And he, we, she more or less tracked down the time period in which she was writing this novel and finds his diaries and reads about it. And a lot of what he's writing about is, it sort of touches on the novel, but a lot of themes in the novel you can trace to things he's reading about and kind of writing about in his diary at the time. So this being a piece of not just like one-sided satires, maybe a, a less productive way of looking at it than as, as you've said, a piece of forum, his response to daily life around him which makes a lot more sense is a lot more biting if you're in that context. It definitely is. I mean, you think about it, like you're, you're dealing with a man who is capable of writing something like Master and Margarita, who's capable of writing a, a fantastic piece of literature. When you look at this, this is not a, you wouldn't say like, wow, what a just absolutely pristine piece of fine literature. That's not what this is. <laughs> and there's a reason. It's not because he just... He just, you know, didn't succeed at his goal. I think it's very much intentional. I think that it's it's not written for the same reader. You know, Master and mm -hmm. Margarita, you could debate this, but I would say probably by 1939, early 1940, before he dies, he probably had a sense that Master and Margarita was not going to be published based on how mm. literally everything else he tried to publish went. And and so I just think that this is a I, I don't know I think this was definitely one that people were meant to read but not like not just like you know bourgeois literary critics like mm. it was meant to speak to like like an average person by this point could have read this book it was not a difficult book uh, and I think personally I think that's who it's meant for and I think it further supports my theory of literature as a forum uh, which sounds fancy when you say it like that. <laughs> and smart no, i think well overall you're right i mean we've covered so many novels Thank which you. in many <laughs> as as usual i think you're right but we've covered so many novels which are very much a response to the things the authors are reading and writing uh, reading at the time and not to say this doesn't happen in other contexts it happens in every context but in this context i think we're seeing a lot of authors who are very much using the novel as a way like instead of writing you know like i think a modern american the modern American public life does the same thing, but that happens in the op-ed pages. Um, that being said, the op-ed pages of American newspapers are a wasteland. Uh, so this is at least Don't visit them. Come to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, so are books like uh, What is to be done by Chernyshevsky, so maybe nothing has changed uh, in that regard. <laughs> um, with that context in mind, a lot of these things, which even I struggle to, like, as you mentioned, like, I'm looking at this, I'm like, oh, this doesn't feel that biting or, or something, something I'd want in, in this but that's not what it is meant to be in it and it, we, we really shouldn't focus force that sort of like well this is this it's an anti-bolshevik satire it is it does have a lot of anti-bolshevik elements and that's its purpose but it's not it wasn't meant to be read by us <laughs> or in the sense that we were not we we're not thought about non-soviet citizens 100 years in the future were not the target audience or whoever came to bulgakov's mind i would be fairly confident in saying when writing this piece yeah exactly like did, did I want exactly what was presented to me here? No, but it also wasn't written for me. So what does that matter? Um, yeah. But I, I do think that it, I, to call it anti-Bolshevik is 
ap- I, mm, not absolutely wrong, but pretty wrong. Uh, like, I, I think it is, in a sense, anti-Bolshevik, but like I was saying earlier, it's it's anti the kind of foundation of mm-hmm. Bolshevism. I really, I really, and I don't think that Bulgakov is someone who ascribes to just one ideology. I think more largely, I guess, it is kind of anti-ideological, and that's kind of my stance on parts of Master and Margarita as well. And for the same reason I was saying earlier that I think he is, this is a satire of all of the characters that are involved. It's every interaction is a satire, not because they're just, you know, dumping on the Bolshevik government, but because every individual uh, (laughs) action and interaction shows how ridiculous uh, each of the characters are because you know if you think if people if you want to make the argument that Bulgakov is actually standing for the doctor like go back and reread the doctor's parts and you tell me that you think <laughs> he's actually positively portrayed I think that would be a a little bit of a misreading personally yeah I mean there are even elements there this is something that uh this is something that Larson pointed out that you know if you're reading the doctor as a hero character well there's a point early on when the doctor is seeing patients in which it's very it's not exactly stated but it very much implied that this character has basically um who we can only assume is a full-ass adult man is in some sort of sexual relationship with a 14 year old and his response is so what wait two years and marry her (laughs) which i you know i'm not an expert on sexual politics at the time but um i don't think i don't know if that was necessarily an acceptable attitude towards um and this is a modern term for it but um for statutory rape yeah there are definitely a a lot of I don't know. You could go back and, and mark them. I didn't happen to do this on the way on the way through it because I thought it was, you know, I didn't think I had to reference all of them. But yeah, there there are more areas on that for sure. Just in in conversation, especially, I think it's yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good. Fun. I I do think um, if there uh, in in the article Bulgakov's early tragedy, the scientist creator and interpretation of the heart of the dog by Diana Bergen. She makes an excellent point that that this is she's are strongly arguing for the professor as a sort of Dr. Frankenstein tragic scientist creator hero. And she makes the strong point that if you think that the professor is meant to be read as a hero, look at the entire novel, the way that the professor is ground down by Sharik or Sharikov and the terrible outcomes that come from it. And then look at the ending wherein the professor not only does not decide, this is actually, the professor himself says, I tried to create a Spinoza, but, you know, turns out, as, you know, any 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 peasant woman can give birth to a Spinoza, I created this. But, despite coming to the realization that his attempts led to not, not a great outcome, um, and his attempt to create Spinozas is inferior to the act of having a child, keeps on doing it. He turns the dog back into a dog and keeps on doing his research he's driven onward to do the, make the exact same mistake that he has already had basically already ruined his life. Um, it really puts into question him as a hero in the same way that, you know, you might want to look, look at Dr. Frankenstein in, in, in Frankenstein as this kind of obsessive, maybe heroic character who truly you have to question their motives when beyond all good reason they keep on in making the same mistakes that already ruined their lives. Yeah, he's. I, I, that's where I think he slips back into Bulgakov a little bit at the end when he's. I that exact line I had in, in mind when he's talking about the, whatever he was talking about, like the, the twenty thousand Spinozas that are born every year, whatever the exact line is. 
he kind of slips back and acknowledges that what he's doing is not really necessary. It has completely failed uh, for the most part. I mean, on some levels, I guess it succeeded in the fact that it, it worked. But, the you know, that's kind of what he's questioning is just because it worked did it really achieve anything better? Like what? Like what is the purpose of what we're doing here? Dare I say, what is to be done? <laughs> and more than that, who is uh, the the Leninist question? Tokavo, uh, who is doing what to whom? Um, who is the professor to do this to to the dog? Um, I think it's interesting that the professor is referred to by so many different names. This is something else that um, Bergen points out. The professor is referred to by so many different names throughout the novel. He's called Godhead, uh, Wizard, um, Priest, Father, Doctor, Deity, Prophet, and so on. And different characters use different ways to refer to him. The, the dog, obviously, well, Sharik, obviously refers to him through a very, first, a, a godly viewpoint, and then later on begins to call him Father or Dad, which, of course, the... <laughs> The professor's not real big on, but I think it, it is interesting and reveals the way that, again, to underline the point that we should be careful about identifying Bulgakov closely with his character, different characters have obviously different ways of viewing him, and that shifts throughout the novel, which really calls into question what the identity is, because it is primarily created by the people around him. You're seeing him through the perspective of, of Starik, you're seeing him through the perspective of uh, the doctor who assists him, and you're seeing him through a out distant perspective but who he is internally is only represented through his his actions and even there are points when for example when the uh when they're putting the pituitary gland in him he's referred to by the by the third person narrator as you know moving you know kind of sinisterly um describing him as a murderer with his use of the knife and in, in stabbing into the dog it, it it definitely introduces this this use of many ways of referring to him introduces some underlying questions of how we identify him i felt i don't know it's interesting to say the least really i feel like we came around on it we, when we first were talking before the podcast we we're kind of getting uh, getting a little bit down on it but i feel like we've really come around on it through our conversation <laughs> yeah it's it's one of those that I, th I think it's still worth reading especially if you're interested in this period just to get a little bit of a better sense of what the 1920s were because they were super super weird and i can tell you that as somebody who studies them <laughs> well i can tell you that firsthand as somebody who studies them it's it's a good time it's a good time for Russian literature, I think. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I it, I think it also does element introduce elements which would later be further developed in Master and Margarita, as is the case with so many novelists um, that we, we cover in, in general, I would say. So yeah, if we ever is. do get there, good read for starting to think about some of the things that are on his mind. Think about it. Think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, um, I, I do really want to read this again and try to, I don't know, there's so many different ways you could come away from it using it as, as almost a method of discourse rather than simply as a novel. Uh, I think Plato would be proud. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we totally wrap up, Cameron, on a scale from one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? I am, and this is an embarrassing mistake I'm going to reveal, I'm at a zero because I forgot to open my beer before the episode started, and then we got too into it. a boy. <laughs> um, but I, having previously drank in some other beers from this pack, it it does have that. It it does. It is a strong, it, a strong peanut butter flavor. And if I'm sure I'd remembered to open it up, and then decided I should do this during the episode before getting carried away talking about Doctor Frankenstein, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. would have enjoyed it. Would at least be at a two. 
based on prior experiences. Mm-hmm. That that theoretical projection aside, how about you? Probably like a, a five or six. I'm not even. I'm not going to slander the uh, twelve dollar whiskey. Nice, nice. I'm not going to slander it. No, no, sir. Not going to slander Kentucky's best. <laughs> Boy, did they give me their best. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you to Kentucky for that one. But uh, what are we reading next episode, Matt? Well, Cameron, I am glad you asked because I am a little bit embarrassed that it t- took us uh, about <laughs> 40 episodes, well, exactly 40 episodes to finally get to Pushkin. That was a, a well, I don't want to say an oversight, but a little bit. You know, thinking back <laughs> on it, if we were to start a Russian literature podcast, we probably should have started with him. So uh, next week, we're going to be reading uh, a little something by the father of the modern Russian language. We're going to be reading The Captain's Daughter by Alexander Pushkin. It is a, a pretty solid short story, and we have a, a collection of his short stories that's available through our affiliate links. So if you're planning on reading along with us, uh, be sure to pick up a copy. You can find the uh, links and whatnot on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Uh, speaking of podcast oversights, our, our podcast is named after Tolstoy, and our first episode is about <laughs> Nikolai Gogol. <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't. Yeah. Yeah, tell me about it. Not our best one, I guess. <laughs> we're better analyzing themes than injecting them into our work in terms of episode order <laughs> what am i gonna do be self-aware no <laughs> never never <laughs> all right well before we let you go we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons we've got jeff janice Anne, emily jesse madeline alex daniel irini page darren larkin lou brandon allison gary cole daniel jack lucy alex and roland podcasting isn't free and grad school really does not pay well at all somebody should have told me that uh so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running take a look at patreon.com slash tipsy tolstoy the music used in this episode was soviet march by toasted tomatoes you can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on youtube under the same username if you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Mm-hmm.